Hey everybody, uh, my name is Kent Woodrow. I'm the next generation pastor here at Holy Cross. And uh, if you weren't here for last week, we're, we're starting our Advent sermon series. Um, and this sermon series is based off the hymn, Thou Who Was Rich. And today we're getting into the third verse of that hymn, Thou Who Art Loved. So today's sermon is going to be built all around the, uh, the idea of love. So here, here's the problem with that. Okay? I say love, and all kinds of different thoughts pop into everyone's head, right? We all have sort of different understandings of what that means to be loved. And I, I, I would say, right, um, we live in a loved, love saturated culture, right? And I don't know that we know what love truly means. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, I think, I think honestly, uh, when we think of love, we tend to think um, something involving sexual attraction, which then makes things really complicated uh, for all those other relationships where they aren't sexual. All right? So that's, one, that's the primary way that our culture tends to view love. The secondary way that we tend to view it is kind of just letting someone else have their way and celebrating everything they choose to do. We don't know what real love is. We get confused. And y'all, that's what the Christmas story is all about. The Christmas story is the true love story, a story that's meant to shape how we understand what true love really is. Okay? So if uh, you have your Bibles, would you turn to Mark 1, we're going to read verses 9 through 11 in Mark 1. And then keep your finger there because uh, we're going to turn over to Mark, uh, Mark 15, verses 34, or 33 and 34. Okay? Um, if, if that's too much flipping around for you, you've got the text in your bulletin too. All right. So would you stand with me out of respect as we, as we read the word of the Lord together? Starting in Mark 1, verse 9. In those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son. With you, I am well pleased. And flip over to Mark 15, starting in verse 33. Jesus is hanging on the cross. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lema zavaktani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the true word of the living God. And he gives it to you because he loves you. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, I just ask that you would move. There's so much um, in each and every one of our lives that would obscure you. So many things that would threaten to, to hijack this time as we're trying to fill our, our minds with our Jesus. And so Lord, I pray that you would clear those distractions aside. 
pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would move to, to grow our heart in love for our Savior and then to move us out of that love toward the world. Um, would you teach us what love is? And then, Lord, would you shape, shape how we see ourselves and how we see reality based on the way that you have loved us? We love you, Lord. Would you grow that love? pray all this in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. You may go ahead and grab a seat. All right, so as we, as we explore this love story, uh, we're going to use story type themes, okay? So we're going to talk about love, the origin story. That's our first point. And then we're going to talk about the climax. We're going to talk about love off the page. What does this look like um, in our practical day-to-day living, okay? Um, Hey, I get it's it's the season of Hallmark movies, and I feel like we've already bashed them once, so I'm going to bash them again. Uh, this is this is not going to be a sappy Hallmark movie thing. It's not. This is a true love story. This is a true love story, and it's meant to to sh- it, it it's meant to shape us. It's a beautiful, true life changing story. That's why we're doing it. So it can shape and change who we are. So let's start at the very beginning, right? We're starting with the, the origin story. The beginning of love starts before time. It starts in the Trinity. The Trinity is, we believe in one God and three persons. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Hey, I'm sure you spend a lot of time at night just kind of musing on what it was like to be God before the beginning of time, right? I mean, we all do that. No, but there are certain theologians that, that's their thing, uh, and they like to think through that. Uh, and so we're going to lean on what they say. So here's the thing. The Bible doesn't actually tell us in great detail what things were like before time began, before the existence of creation. So we cautiously piece together hints, primarily from things that Jesus said uh, in the Gospel of John or the things that the Apostle John wrote in his letter, kind of like what we read in First John chapter 4. Um, Here's the story. In the beginning, there was God. One God in three persons. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Perfectly satisfied. Perfectly content. Each person in the Godhead delighting and honoring the other. This kind of swirling vortex of love and unity that we cannot comprehend. You know why? Because, I mean, we can kind of get what it'd be like for two people to love each other, right? Yeah, we're a little closer to that. You insert a third person, things get messy, typically. There's always two people that are closer than the third. You can have someone who's left out. Triads. Not the great picture of love. However, it's not the case with our God. Each of the three persons perfectly loving one another, each of them delighting in each other. It's the picture of perfect love. And hey, uh, if if you're here and you're visiting and and you're thinking, yeah, see, three three persons, one God, none of that makes sense to me. Um, Again, here's why this is beautiful. Human-made religions, the gods in those religions create, have a sense of need. They create because they need to be served. They create because they need to be loved. Not our God. Not our God and his three persons. Perfectly loved, 
perfectly content, perfectly satisfied, and it is out of the abundance of that love. It's out of the overflow of that love that he creates. He creates a world, a stage to show his glorious love on, and he creates children, human beings, to embody and reflect that love. That's the love story. That's the very beginning. Uh, so, that's, that's what it looked like in the Trinity, and now we're going to talk about the first son. Okay? Uh, now, hey, son can be triggering sometimes. The word son in the Bible is not like a misogynistic, uh, oppressive construct. It's actually a picture, a very beautiful, powerful picture of relationship that runs through the whole of, the, whole of the Bible. So, the Bible calls the first man... Adam, the first human being, God's son, does that in Luke chapter 3. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be someone's son? Um, There's a lot of things. Today we're just going to focus on one primary thing, image, image of God. You ever had uh, that experience where you look at somebody and you're like, I totally know who your parents are. That's what it's supposed to be like. Maybe you've had that experience as a parent. Like, I don't see it in my kid, but everybody thinks both my daughters look exactly like me. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, children. You ever had that experience? That's what it's supposed to look like. So God creates Adam and he says, you look like me. As the Jesus Storybook Bible says, you look like me. We're made to reflect God. We're made to reflect his glorious love into this world. As a part of that, like, we're sons So we're created in God's image, sons and daughters. uh, And we're made heirs, heirs of God's blessing and his promises. But there's another thing that's involved there. We're not just sons. At least the first Adam, the first son, wasn't just a son. He was also beloved. God loved his kids. And you can see that in Genesis 2. Like if if you jump back to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis 2 kind of recounts the creation of God's creation of human beings and it is a tender picture of the way that God is moving into relationship with these first human beings. Uh, and, And God wants to be with them. He is literally walking around in the garden where these people live. He's showering them with good food unlike the ancient Near Eastern gods where you had to actually feed your God. That's what sacrifices were. Instead, God showers his kids with food. He takes care of them like a good parent would right? And he warns them away from, from danger. And then, and then there's the nakedness bit, right? That's the part we all get uncomfortable with. Every time I mention this in youth group, we, all the kids start laughing and giggling. Um, but it's a beautiful picture. God could have made human beings in any way that, they, that he wanted to. What does it communicate? It means there's nothing to hide. There's no shame. There's no armor there. We're not built like crabs, We're made to be fully known, fully loved, nothing hiding. Made to be fully known and fully loved by each other, but primarily by God, right? And then came the betrayal. We turned our backs on God. We backstabbed him. First human beings turned away from him, and instead of becoming Instead of being sons and daughters, they rebelled. They became rebels. So what does that mean for the image? You know, they're made to look like God. Well, they become unrecognizable. That image is warped. It doesn't look the same. 
Um, and even worse than that, that image becomes a mockery. Have you ever had somebody, uh, maybe you have to go way back to middle school to remember this, um, somebody take a picture of you and just deface it entirely, like draw mustaches on it, put horns, all that. I used to do that to my sisters. They loved it. Um, you ever had that? You ever have someone draw a picture of you and get like, hey, here's your portrait. This is what you look like. Had a youth kid do that to me. It was, uh, I look great. <laughs> what do you do with that? It offends you deeply, doesn't it? You tear it up. You burn it. It's a mockery of who you are. It's not what God did. And we'll get to what he did later. So instead of heirs, we became rebels. Or instead of, uh, instead of sons, we became rebels. Instead of heirs, we became usurpers. We now sought God's throne. We wanted to be God ourselves. It wasn't enough to be a child. It wasn't enough to be heir to what he has given. We want now to rule. Play God. Play by our own rules. Control this world to meet our needs, right? To play God in the lives of other people. You ever experienced that? We don't want to inherit. We want to rule. Or else destroy. If we can't rule, we're going to destroy. Right? So we were rebels instead of sons. We were usurpers instead of heirs. We were outcasts instead of beloved. Because here's the thing, when we turned against God, we became corrupted and broken. We ran away from his presence. And as a result of that, we couldn't endure being in his perfect presence. Perfection cannot, like imperfection cannot be with perfection and not be consumed. So God sent us away. We were already running away. God sent us away. That's the betrayal. So love starts off with the Trinity in the very beginning, moves toward the first son, God's relationship with human beings, meant to be intimate, open, loving. We turn our backs on God. All right, so here, here, here's the question, right? So why couldn't God just forgive and forget? If he's really all about this love thing, why can't he just be like, hey, you know what? I get it. You broke the world. You ruined relationship with me. You've introduced sin and darkness and terrible things, and it's okay. It's fine. We'll just, we'll move past this, right? All right, uh, here, here's the problem, okay? Because God is not just a loving father. He's also the just judge of the universe. And this analogy is gonna break down on so many different levels, but um, work with me. Imagine you're, you're a teenager again. I'm realizing I'm talking to kids a lot. Like, you can tell this is what I do, right? All right, imagine you're a teenager again. You steal your dad's car and then go, like, wreck a grocery store with it. Go charging it. Hey, here's, here's what happens. Maybe after that whole fiasco, you're, you see your dad and his response isn't like, what on earth? Did He's like, okay, it, it's gonna be okay. I forgive you, right? That'd be nice. If, but you're gonna show up in court because of that. And if the judge just looks at you and says, you know what? I get it. I get it. We're all that way and, and just don't do it again. I forgive you. That doesn't work, right? Why? Because he's a judge. He's supposed to maintain law. And here, here's the deal. If you don't like the idea of God as judge, you actually kind of do. 
Because imagine that was your car that was stolen by some random kid out there in the street. You want the judge to be just. You want that. You just don't want it when it's you, right? God has to be just. Somebody's got to pay. Someone's got to bear the sentence for our betrayal. And someone did. God did. Out of the overflow and abundance of his love, God moves toward rebels, he moves toward usurpers, he moves towards outcasts to pay the price. God did that. All right, so let's, uh, that, that's the origin story. Let's get into the climax here. And this is where we're gonna dig into our text in Mark, right? Uh, so God sends God, the, the second person of the Trinity, comes down, becomes a human being, and in this climactic moment in Mark, he's baptized, and we actually see all three persons of the Trinity here. You hear the voice of God from heaven, the voice of the Father, you are my beloved son. You see Jesus in the water over whom this is spoken, and then you have the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus, so all three persons are there. Who is the second son? How did Jesus live into being the second son? Because Jesus became the son that we failed to be. Well, looks right here. Like, he perfectly reflected God's image. He says, you, you are my beloved son. Jesus looked like God. It's kind of a well duh, right? But no, like, he did. If you want to know what it looks like for God to live in a shattered world, if you want to know what divine love looks like in a broken context full of selfishness and hatred, you look to Jesus. This is what it meant to, to live as God, to, to image God perfectly. And the Lord says, God the Father speaks over him, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. Jesus did that job perfectly, the job of perfectly imaging God. In fact, uh, I mean, this is kind of an aside, but I want to go ahead and read it. Uh, there's a passage in Isaiah 40. This was written 500 years before Jesus as God is setting the stage for his son to come. It's Isaiah 42, and he says, Behold, my servant whom I uphold, my chosen and whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice. If you guys have a chance, read the whole of Isaiah 42. It is beautiful. This is how Jesus embodied God's tender love and his justice. Jesus perfectly imaged God. And it wasn't just that. He didn't just image God perfectly. What does he say? You are my beloved. Actually, if you, if you go back into the Greek, which is the language that this uh, passage was written in, in the very beginning, it says, you are my son, the beloved. I love you. I love you. Do you know what that's like? you know what it's like to be beloved? I think that's a hard question, honestly, for any of us to answer, because most of us are uncomfortable feeling loved. Uh, so let, let's flip it a little bit. Do you know what it's like to love, to have a beloved one? You know what it's like to love that person fiercely, 
to be deeply stirred by them, to want their best, even at cost to yourself. This is why every single one of us are in this room, right? Because some mom loved us enough to not throttle us in the night, right? When we were yelling and screaming as a, as a selfish little newborn. Even it costs to yourself, you want their best. To delight in being near the person. I just want to be with you. So beloved, that's what it looks like to have a beloved one. And if you've experienced any of that, then you've experienced a human echo of a divine reality that began way before time started. That's what it means to be beloved. And Jesus was loved, and he not only was loved, but he had God's presence, right? Every human being was made to have the presence of God to experience the presence of God. In the very beginning, God created Adam and he breathed his spirit, breathed his presence into Adam's, into Adam's uh, body. And so did you notice this Holy Spirit shows up again in this passage. He descends out of the heaven, rests upon Jesus. He was beloved, experienced the presence of God. So what happened? Right? Now we flip over to Mark 15. What happened? You see, Jesus chose to be treated as a rebel, as an outcast, as a usurper. And he chose to experience the penalty that comes upon such a person. Right? Treason, that's what we'd committed. We committed treason against God. And across the globe, in every culture, the price for treason is your life. Whether it's, you know, life in prison or physical death, it's your life. So the king chose to be executed in the place of his rebels. But here's the deal. Jesus didn't just die for our treason. In fact, in some sense, you could almost say death was the easy part. Don't you think? Because listen to this cry. It's right here. You, you can hear where the true anguish lies, right? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the hard part, the forsakenness. Hey, um, it's going to be, this might hurt a little bit, um, but things are supposed to hurt. To, supposed to hurt for it to heal. Um, do you know the pain of being forsaken by other people? Odds are, probably, right? Whether it's been someone who's been super meaningful and impactful in your life, or maybe, you know, it's that, that friend in elementary school who just was a total jerk, right? Friend one moment and then not the next. Do you know what it's like to be cast out to receive the silent treatment. Some of us came back from Thanksgiving and you had the silent treatment, right? To receive the silent treatment, to uh, see the turned back. Here's the deal. If, if being loved is what we were made for and is the deepest joy that we experience, then being forsaken is the most painful. It's one of the deepest pains you can experience. Have you ever felt that from God? You know what it's like to feel like your prayers just bounce off the ceiling, not going anywhere. You know what it's like to feel that 
God doesn't like you. He's turned his back on you. He wants to maybe watch you suffer. I think every one of us has probably had that play in our head at one point or other, you know? So here's the question then, like, why would this happen to Jesus? How do you go from being beloved to being forsaken? Well, I mean, it's the, the, the thing that ruptures a relationship is betrayal, isn't it? So, uh, again, it, we all experience this to varying degrees, and, it, and most, of, most of it's just petty, uh, you know. Again, think back to, oh, so-and-so rolled their eyes at me, and now, like, I, you know, I'm, I'm, you ruptured relationship. I'm offended by you. But, but here's the subtext to that, right? The subtext to that isn't, no, you rolled my, but it's, it's, I thought I could trust you. I thought you had my, my best interest to heart. So I was vulnerable with you. And, and now you betrayed that. That's the subtext, right? And a version of that lies in the deepest areas of betrayal, right? So if, if as human beings, one of the biggest experiences we can have of betrayal is infidelity in a marriage, right? Unfaithfulness. I thought I could trust you. I was vulnerable with you. I thought we lived in this relationship where we didn't hide anything from each other, where we, could, we were free to be fully known and, and fully loved. But you, you were hiding. You were pretending. You were betraying my love and betraying me. Right? It's painful. It's terrible. Betrayal like that ruptures relationship. Doesn't that sound an awful lot like what we did to God? in the beginning, right? And so Jesus chose to bear the weight of that betrayal. I was, so I, I racked my brain uh, yesterday all week just trying to think of like, okay, what kind of story can I tell? What kind of example can I give that would help us kind of get what this looks like? To, to take the weight of someone's betrayal upon yourself. And honestly, like, I came up empty. Because I just don't know that we've got a good parallel to what Jesus did. Because Jesus, he, he literally, he took that betrayal and said, act as if I did that. Uh, the, the relationship between these people and God matter more to me Act as if I betrayed you. And so Jesus took on our hiding, right? He took on our, our faithlessness, our sneaking around, our backstabbing of God, as though he were the one who did that. He chose, he chose to have God turn his back on him so that we could experience God's face and God's smile again. He chose to hear silence from God when he called out. So we'd hear God's voice once more. He chose to be left behind so that we could walk with God. He chose to be forsaken so that we could be beloved. There, there is no parallel, right? 
There's no, there's no human experience you've gone through that perfectly matches up to that. Jesus did that because it mattered to him. It mattered to God that you would be close to him again. The Lord moved in his love to bear the weight of our unlove and our betrayal. That's the Christmas story. That's the love story. In the overflow and abundance of God's love, he, he took on the weight of our unfaithfulness, of our betrayal, of our, of our treason against him so that we could be reunited once more into this like swirling vortex of love that is God that we were made to be in. All right, so uh, that's the origin story. That's the climax. How's this supposed to shape us, right? Have you ever had the experience, like think back to the first time you realized you were truly loved. Truly loved. It's a profound thing. And if I had 30 minutes, I'd tell you the story of, uh, of Anna and me and how like, she rocked my world by choosing to, choosing to love me, shaped me. If you've ever had that experience, love is meant to shape you. And so let's, let's think through that. Let's think through love off the page. What does this look like? Um, and so, hey, if you're not a Christian here uh, today, I just want you to know, like, this love... God extends to you. He wants to invite you into this. This is what you were made for. Hey, I, I get it, right? Like, we spend our lives searching, searching to be loved, you know? Like, I mean, we could say we're looking for power. We could say we're looking for wealth. We're say, we could say we're looking for all these other things. But at core, what we're looking for in all of that is to be told we're okay. To know that, hey, I love you. You are fully known and fully loved. Jesus gives that to you. Your, your God extends that to you. Will you trust him? That's why we hold ourselves back, right? It's that, it's that I'm not sure if I can trust you to love me the way you say. That's why our, our, all of our human relationships are kind of this dance of like, okay, how close can I get to you without like you hurting me? Trust God. He loves you fully. He knows you thoroughly. He wants to invite you into this. Hey, if you are a Christian here today, uh, I just want to briefly work through um, some of the categories we've already worked through in the sermon. Okay, um, You realize, in loving you, God, God made you his child again. You're not an orphan anymore. So that means God is remaking you into his image. We get it. We're all warped, we're all broken, and God is reshaping that so that you look like him. Because if this world is going to see what it looks like for God to be at work in it, it's going to be through us. It's going to be through Christians. It's going to be through God's kids. And God's okay with that because we're all broken and messed up and we do a terrible job of really imaging God in this world but he married his mission to us. He chose to do that. So he's not afraid of it, okay? So God's busy restoring his image in you. Um, so there are two categories of people I wanna, I wanna talk to first. Uh, if, if you look at that and you're kind of self-skeptical and you're like, I don't know, have you met me? I'm so broken. I'm messed up. There's no way like I'm reflecting God. 
hey, you're in good company. Me too. Me too. I do a terrible job of reflecting God. This whole week has just been a nightmare when it comes to, to me reflecting God. So here's, here's my encouragement to you. Trust. Trust his spirit. God is at work. Believe that when he says, I love you and I'm working in you, that he actually is. And odds are, if you're that person who is self-skeptical and like, I see so many flaws and brokenness in me, uh, odds are you're harder on yourself than the people around you are. So maybe go find a trusted friend and ask them, have you seen God grow me lately? You know, it's an exercise in vulnerability. (laughs) So, um, hey, so that's for the self-skeptical. If you're self-assured, if you're like, yeah, no, I know God loves me. I'm fine with that. And uh, no matter what I do, God will love me. You're right. He will. God does love you. His love for you doesn't depend on your behavior. Definitely not. But his, his mission for you does. You see, God, God wants you to reflect him. God wants people to see him through you. Wants to use you to point to him, right? And so, you know, it, it's like the... It's like the little kid who, who puts on mommy's shoes and her little uh, coat and says, I'm going for a date with daddy, you know? Or like the son that like, says, I'm going to work because he's got his dad's stethoscope around him, you know? That's cute. You're not going to image your parent perfectly, but you're supposed to. You're supposed to image God. Um, so God wants to use you to show others what he's like, to help others get to know him, right? So So my encouragement to you, if you're kind of the self-assured one, lean into the family resemblance. All right. This is probably the tougher thing if you're a Christian. Not only are you a child of God, you are beloved. You are loved. And I think that is probably the hardest thing for any of us to to believe. Because when I just said that, defenses of all sorts of different kinds popped up. No, I'm not. Or else the, um, yeah, yeah, I get that, and then you kind of move on. No, you are loved. Your God, your Father loves you, and your behavior doesn't change that. See, we, we often think because we had a bad week that now suddenly God's love for us has changed because I don't love him as much as I should have this week. He didn't love me as much, but that's not how it works. His love is unwavering and constant. And he wants to be with you. I mean, if you, ha- you hear the word Emmanuel show up a lot in Christian uh, songs during Christmas, do you guys know what that means? Emmanuel. It's a Hebrew phrase meaning God with us. God wants to be with you. He made you for that in the beginning. He sent his son. He became human to take on the weight of your betrayal so that he could be with you again. His presence is in you. The Holy Spirit, which he has given to you, lives inside you. You don't get any closer to God than to have him in you, inhabiting you, choosing you to be his dwelling place, right? And you may feel moments of being forsaken. I get that. I think we all do. We feel like God's not listening. Um, and, and there are a couple reasons for this one it could be you're living in unrepentant sin which means 
um, you are doing something consistently that you know you shouldn't, and you keep doing it. And because of that, it's not that God has stopped loving you, it's just that your experience of him, that sin is kind of blotting that out so that you can't experience his love. Because you do know that you've got something between him and you, right? So the answer to that is repent. That's what your small groups are for. That's what this church is for. We want to walk alongside you in that, right? So you can have that. Or there might be something, you know, circumstantial going on. Your life is just hard right now. And it's hard for you to experience any kind of pleasure. And so you end up assuming that God doesn't like you. Or you've got some, something going on chemically inside you, whatever. You're going through depression, whatever it is. We can feel forsaken by God, but our experiences do not dictate reality. God does. And he's moved towards you with love, and he said, you are my beloved one. Okay? Jesus chose to be forsaken by God so that we would never be forsaken. That's, our, that's, that's the gospel truth. You lean into that. In those moments when you feel it's just so dark, you lean into that. God, I know you got me. Because Jesus, Jesus experienced what I should, I'll never have to. Okay? And, Christian, this, this love is supposed to, it's to fl- supposed to flow out toward others. All right, so let's, let's just think quickly through what stops us from moving toward other people with the love that God's given us. All right, uh, first thing is, Maybe you're like, well, they're warped. They're warped. They're broken. It makes me uncomfortable. I don't know that I like this. Hey, if you've ever been to a church and felt like an outsider and people treated you like you were warped and broken beyond repair and stuff like that, I am sorry. That is not the way, that is not the experience you should have had. Because the cure for that kind of attitude is honestly just look in the mirror. (laughs) You look in the mirror, you're like, you know what? I'm pretty warped. I'm pretty messed up. And God set his love on me. So that can free me up. Like That gives you that measure of humility that we need to not think so highly of ourselves and to assume other people are more broken than you are, right? It allows you to move toward other people being like, God moved toward me when I was warped and broken and I'm still warped and broken in so many ways. So let me tell you about how he extends his love to you, right? The other reason we probably don't share God's love with other folks and want other people to know him is because we're afraid of forsakenness. We're afraid of losing the relationship, right? We're, we're concerned that if I say something, I, I'm not gonna have this anymore. It's a legitimate fear. It hurts. But let me just encourage you in that the most important relationship is secure. You're not gonna lose this. God's relationship with you because that relationship is secure, it does give us a measure of confidence as we move into relationship with other people that, hey, I can risk this because the most important relationship that I want you to have is that one too, between you and God. It doesn't answer everything, but it does give us a measure of security from which we can move out, okay? Um, Maybe the other thing is you just fear the mess. People are messy. Relationships are messy. Uh, And whenever we're threatened, whenever life gets chaotic and so forth, we just want to like box off and not have to deal with any other kind of mess out there. Um, I get that. That's me. 
I mean, ever since I heard that Rick was leaving, I was like, okay, I got to withdraw. I'm going to like protect self. Maybe you've had that experience, right? It's not what you're made for. Love is meant to flow out. It's not meant for you to be self-protective. If you really want to experience what it looks like to image God, you love others in the mess because that is where you most perfectly image God because that's what God did, move toward us in the mess. And if you're just apathetic, again, I get that too. Um, just don't feel like doing it. And let me encourage you, this Advent season, just bask in the God who came. Bask in the God who came. Delight in the one who was rich who became poor, all for love's sake. The one who was loved, who chose to be forsaken, all for love's sake. Delight in the way he delights in you, because I guarantee you, that'll change you. Love inspires love. You will come away changed. All right, so ultimately, whatever whatever your response is, whatever it is that is inhibiting you, the answer isn't to look down here. Look down here at your, your failings, your fears, all of that. It's to look out there. It's to look to the Lord. To see him and to delight in his beauty and in the beautiful love story he's written to draw you to himself. That's the story of Christmas. That's the story we get to share with other people. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, uh, this is a, a beautiful story and it's true. Every single word of it is true. And there's so much in us that gets in the way of allowing us to experience this. Would you forgive us? Would you clear away the obstacles, Lord, so that this Christmas season, we might know your love, maybe more deeply than we ever have, or maybe for the first time if we've never experienced this. Would you allow us to know the God who came for us, in our mess, in our brokenness. And to then share that God with other people. We love you, Lord. Would you continue to grow our love? In Jesus' name we pray, amen.